0: Heavenly Father, it is an incredible thing to stand before you. Each of us here, we stand here with texts in front of us, with a topic in front of us. And Lord, I pray that we will have awe at your holiness, that we will have awe at the word you have given us, and that we would look at your word not as just some casual advice. But as the very Word of God, may it change us and change us completely. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. If uh, we can stay in John chapter 6, so you can move your way back to John chapter 6. But if you want to move your your brain back about 400 years, and if you could picture yourself living in the Netherlands in the year 1619, just a little bit to wrap your mind around uh, tulips that we think so much of in the Netherlands had only really been heavily in that country for a few decades. They were shipped in from Turkey originally. And a, a guy had kind of, uh, you might say, messed up. He really liked tulips, and he wrote a book, and he said, this is how great tulips are. And people were like, these are great. And so they started stealing them from him to the point where he was having a hard time keeping any of them around. The tulip boom happened. So that's what you would be aware of at that time. There was a, uh, you know, the, the wooden clogs were a big deal in the Netherlands. And just, I think, 45 or so years earlier, they, they started up having a, a clog guild so that people wouldn't make clogs poorly or in ways that didn't represent the country well. Uh, if you were living in, in 1619 in the Netherlands, there might be a little group of people that some of you would see, and, and they came to be known as the separatists. And they were from England and would be leaving the very next year to come to America as pilgrims in 1620. So that kind of helps us in our brain where, where things are going in 1619. In 1619, the Reformation was only about 100 years old. So your grandma might have heard reformers preach on their travels or on her travels. Your dad might have first-generation books from a reformer. I think this past week was Spurgeon's 185th birthday. And so, the, you know, the reformers were closer to them than we were to Spurgeon. And we think of Spurgeon as not that long ago, That kind of helps us date things a little bit. You would at that time, if you're a believer, you would be uh, repeatedly thinking the just shall live by faith. The Reformation has just happened. Um, Belgium eventually became a, a Catholic country, and the Netherlands became primarily a Protestant country, and you would be thinking over and over and over, the just shall live by faith. You would see serious differences with the Roman church. The Council of Trent's only been 60 or 70 years earlier. The Council of Trent definitively said that salvation by faith alone is anathema, or you're to be cursed if you believe in salvation by faith alone. So in the midst of all this, 400 years ago, questions were being asked. Questions like, how big is God? Questions like, how powerful is God? Is the good news focused on man or is it focused on God? Is God intimately involved with His creation, or is He afar off in heaven? Is God actively pursuing His children, or did He throw out a universal plea in hopes that some listen? So the Canons of Dort, written 400 years ago, didn't seek to answer every theological question, but they did seek, within the realms of salvation, to give a framework and answers from Scripture so that regular people and pastors alike could better read the Bible, have a framework and an understanding, and then could teach their congregations and could better teach their families. Three weeks ago, we looked at total depravity, the idea that man, all mankind, is absolutely and completely doomed in their sin, that sin isn't just a little problem, it's a serious, complete problem, can only be reached by God. We looked at unconditional election, that eternity passed, God chose and brought some to himself. Last week, we looked at limited atonement or a particular redemption, seeing how God redeemed particularly his children for himself. So today the topic is irresistible grace, or some might know it as effectual grace, because it's effective and it works as God wants it to work. And some questions we might be trying to answer would be, how lost is a lost person? Is salvation 100% God's work or do we join him, help him, or meet in the middle in salvation? Is God's saving grace scattered out to everyone or is it specifically given to those who become his children? Again, the canons were written that lay people and pastors alike could read and study and they're really written to all people. So they were written to moms and dads, retired people, grandparents, singles, middle schoolers. They're written to all to help us to understand How big is God? And I have some questions, and I kind of set up our our outline with three questions. And the questions are this, is God big or small? Second question, does God really act? And thirdly, is the gospel call legitimate? And it's all within the idea and the realm of irresistible grace. So first of all, is God small? And if you're there in John chapter 6, let's read, Verses 41 and 42 again. So, so the Jews grumbled about him. They're complaining. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And this is a legitimate question they have. Just earlier in the chapter, we have the report of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And while he was feeding the 5,000, at the very end, he says, I am the bread of life. And he says it again, and then a little later he says it again, and people are saying, so you're saying you're the only way? I mean, it was really good bread, and it fed us, but you're, you're claiming something that you're more than just a regular guy, and we know your mom, and we know your dad, and you know what are you talking about? We have the record of Jesus walking on the water, and he goes again, and he says, hey, let me tell you again, I'm the bread of life, and this is what it looks like. And the group is standing over here saying, hey, what, wh- who, who do you think you are? Who do you you say that you are? Because Israel was looking for something different, right? What was Israel looking for? They were looking for a king, a king who's going to be powerful and strong and maybe do some of those things that David did. Maybe he's going to be a man of war and he's going to drive away these hated Romans. Maybe he's going to be a man of of great brains and wisdom and he's going to be like Solomon and expand their borders to, to a greater size than they ever were. Maybe Under Manasseh, an evil king, they were about that size again. But he's going to make our country big again. We're not going to be this little vassal state. We're not going to be pushed down. We're not going to be under the control of somebody else. The Messiah that I'm looking for is going to make things right politically. And he's going to rule and be tough and strong. And here's Jesus saying things that don't fit with what I'm looking for. And the question that we have to ask, and that first century audience had to ask is, what are we looking for? Are we looking for a Messiah who's a genie or do we look for a Messiah who's a ruler? And I think if we're honest, much of the time we're looking for a Messiah who's a genie. We want someone that we can say, I'm going to rub this lamp and I'm going to say some words and he's going to do things that I like. He's going to make my health perfect. He's going to make my bank account perfect. He's going to make my job perfect. He's going to make my family perfect. He's going to make everything nice. And we know as we read scriptures that, boy, there's a, a future and a hope and we over and over look to scripture of a time is coming a time is coming of perfection and rightness and we know that his love for us is perfect and his gifts for us are perfect even here right now but we know that in this world is brokenness and hurt i was i was listening to a guy this week and he said god is not does not primarily worry about or be concerned about our prosperity or having everything just perfect you know what he's concerned about is our holiness And what often drives us to holiness? It's hard things. It's difficult things. Are things that don't always go how we want. So do we, and and am I looking for a genie who will do what I want? Or am I looking for a ruler who tells me what to do? One is much more popular than the other. One is not God. So am I willing to follow where the scriptures lead? Or will I require my God to be what I want, how I want, how I feel, or what I have grown up with. Because you know what Jesus says in John? He says, I'm not just some guy. He says, I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm the gatekeeper. He says, I'm the door. He says, I and my Father are one. He makes huge, bold statements like that. And then he says, and and you people, which would be all of us in this room, which would be all of us in this world, have a serious problem. You have a problem called total depravity. You have a problem called sin. And it's not a Small sin. That the teens and I we had watched a, a Ray Comfort video. And in the Ray Comfort video, those that know Ray Comfort, you know, he goes around, and sticks microphones in people's faces and asks them questions. And it's always entertaining and it's always directly and he takes them to the gospel. And basically he takes them hey, the problem of sin, and almost always people say, ah, you know, it's it's not that big of a deal. And he works them through the Ten Commandments typically and gets them to the point where they say, you know, I'm I'm a liar, I'm a cheater, I'm an adulterer, I'm a sinner. I've got a serious problem. And Pastor Mark preached on that uh, three weeks ago. And he said that accurately, and he taught us through John, where Jesus teaches that as humans we are dull, we're defiant, we're dominated, we're desperate, and we're doomed. And not just a little bit of sin, not just a little bit of weakness, fully and completely we have a serious, serious problem. Now, uh... The idea of TULIP that we are preaching through starts off with total depravity as the first one. Uh, the canons of Dort do not. Um, they would actually start with, with uh, Pastor Keith Maddie's sermon on election would be the first one. And then um, particular redemption that uh, Pastor Keith Withrow preached on would be the next. And actually three and four would be kind of Pastor Mark's message on total depravity and four would be what I'm preaching on today. And actually they really combine them because they said you, you, can never understand, um, you can never understand God's grace unless you see it in the lens of serious sin. So remember this, dull, defiant, dominated, desperate, and doomed. So man has an insurmountable problem. We're dead in sins. But is God big or is God small? We're going to see throughout John that God is big. And as such, does God really act? Let's look at verses 43 through 46. Does God really act? Jesus says in response to this grumbling, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Well, what does this drawing look like? Well, the the Greek term is actually dragged by force. It's a little more aggressive than we kind of like uh, in our day and age today. We like it to be a little more gently like God is drawing. Well, you know what he's doing? This is what we like to think. It's, It's like you with your little dog. You have little bits of hamburger and you toss them out and he follows and Toss a little more, and he follows, and it's just happy little wooing. What's really not the idea of John chapter 6. It says, God says, you, you, you are coming with me. You are mine, and I'm bringing you to myself. You are, you are dead. I am, I am directing a dead person to myself. I'm not just throwing out candies to a two-year-old. Oh, look at how he's following me all around the gym. That is, that is not the idea in the original languages. And he says, which I think this is interesting, it goes right along with his, with his power and bigness. Jesus says right in verse 43, don't grumble amongst yourselves. You might want a God that looks like this. That is not me. This is what I am doing. And I am, if we say the term Lord, the term Lord means ruler. I'm your ruler. And as such, this is how I'm choosing to work and it is for your best. So don't grumble amongst yourselves. You can't come unless you are drawn, and I will raise him up on the last day. saying, hey, when I draw, good things are coming. It doesn't mean you're going to have everything happy, happy, joy, joy in your life right here, but I'm going to draw you to myself, and there is a coming time, and I'm going to raise you up, and you are going to be with me. And we can look throughout John and talk about preparing a place for us and making things right and a future and a hope. That is all in this text right here. But it's done in, in Jesus' way as he's guided and directed by the Father. He says, raising up on that resurrection hope. And then he has that term in there. It says from the prophets. He says in verse 45, it's it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. That's a kind of a, a shortened version of Isaiah 54, 13, where it talks about Jerusalem restored. And it talks about all your sons being taught by God. And talks in there about great will be your children's peace. And they're speaking that to a nation that has been at war repeatedly. You've got Egypt below there and Assyria above there and, and Babylon, I guess for you guys to be over here at Babylon. They've been constantly at war. Even from within, they've got the Philistines. They've got the Midianites over here. They've got people all over the place at war, at war, at war. And he says, following my plan and my guidance and my drawing, there's going to be peace, and you're going to be taught by God himself, and things are going to be right, and great will be your children's peace. So there's no crying or running from irresistible grace, rather it's loving and caring. So what are some beliefs about grace within greater Christianity? I think that might be helpful to our understanding. Um, the basic Arminian belief would be prevenient grace, and it's you know, a big word, so don't, don't worry about it too much. Prevenient means prior and so it's basically like prior grace that's kind of shotgunned out to the world. There'd be a way we could look at that. It's just saying everyone's tossed some grace and then we can choose to respond. That's prevenient grace. That'd be under Arminian theology. Um, those that believe in the doctrines of grace or, or Calvinist theology, you might know it as, believe in kind of in really in two different kinds of gr- grace. So if we have prevenient grace over here, thought by and taught by a group, um, Calvinists would teach... A, a different, they would say there's actually two different kinds of grace. There's common grace. And common grace, would what we would understand maybe from Romans chapter 1, that would be why we are without excuse. That might be the, the world that God created. We look out and we see a beautiful oak tree and we say, I couldn't make that thing. Well, there's some, there's, some order, there's some order to our world. Why is it that we need honeybees? Why is it that we need birds? Why is it that these animals eat this and these animals eat those animals? How... Who who would have made this? How do we see this order? How 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 come why does science work in the way that it works? That's all common grace. Common grace also can be our conscience, it can be life itself, it can be the, the good actions of believers as it as it as good things happen in this world. It all be common grace. Um, and again, Romans 1 says, because of common grace we're without excuse, but we don't come to Christ with common grace. We need, we could call it saving grace uh we could we could call it irresistible grace we could call it uh effective grace and that's given to the elect effectively bringing dead sinners view that dead sinners who would never choose him left in their deadness it brings them to regeneration and belief so so the question we have to ask there is well does that mean that god can't be rebelled against so god just does whatever he wants and just like flings me here and flings me there can can god not be rebelled against well, those of you, if we, if we read our Bibles, we would say, well, the Bible's full of rebellion. I mean, look at Israel over and over rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. How about even in, in John here when people are grumbling against him? We've got rebellion, rebellion. If we look into our own hearts and our own families, we see, well, there's, there's rebellion all the time. If we look in Acts 7 and Stephen's preaching and he says, and he's preaching along and people are saying, oh, this is a good message. Oh, this is a good one. Really like how you're saying that. And he says, you stiff-necked people, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? Good, grab rocks kill the guy. We're not going to take that. We don't resist the Holy Spirit, but they were. So does irresistible grace mean that God can't be resisted? What's going on there? Well, we know that it happens over and over and over, and it happens in our own heart. If we can understand it this way, it's irresistible in that effectual grace always results in God's intended outcome. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we don't fall short because we do and we do. But it always results in God's intended outcome, the salvation of the person it was given to. So another question we have to ask then, so then am I forced to Christ? Am I just like, I guess, dragged over here and pitched over to the side and like, hey, you have to come to Christ and that's just the way that it is? It's not the best way to think of it. Here's what Dort says, and, and we could read a lot. There's really good articles in, in the, the Councils of Dort. But Dort says, no, it does not force or abolish the will, but rather it spiritually revives, heals, reforms, and bends it. So it doesn't tear up the will, but it revives it spiritually. It heals, reforms, and bends it. Uh, R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, Irresistible grace does not mean that God's grace is incapable of being resisted. Indeed, we are capable of resisting God's grace, and we do resist it. The idea is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. It's not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills, but here's what it is. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills So that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing, and more than willing, we run to Christ and embrace Him joyfully, because the Spirit has changed our hearts, without which we would never, never have any desire to come to Christ. So let's flesh this out a little bit in a couple different passages. We'll look at John 11 a little bit, and John 3 a little bit, and actually we'll probably We'll hit a little bit of Ephesians and a little bit of Ezekiel while we're there, too. So we'll hit, we'll hit a few passages. But let's look at, at John 11 for starters. If you want to turn over there, it's, it's, it's right there. A familiar passage. Um, Jesus is teaching. He's up north, and um, he's a ways away from Bethany. Bethany is right by Jerusalem, um, a couple miles away. Um, he's up north, and he gets word, hey, you love, you are tremendous friends with Mary and with Martha and with her brother Lazarus. And Lazarus is at the point of death. He is super sick. And it's interesting, Jesus says in verse 5 of chapter 11, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he raced there and got there in time to stop him from dying. But it doesn't say that. It says, so when he heard, he loved them so much. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So they're dying, or Lazarus is dying. He's probably two days away. So I'm staying here two more days because I love them so much. And earlier, and then later in the passage, he says, I'm doing this for the purpose of God's glorific- God to be glorified. That's what I want to happen. But if you're Mary and Martha and you're saying, you send someone up, let's say 90 miles north, there in Capernaum, You send them up there and you say, hey, hustle back, hustle back. I know, I know you can heal my brother. Please come back. Please come back. I love you. You love us. Please come back. And you get word he's stayed another day. And then he stayed another day. And then he travels for two days. And your brother's been dead for four days and he shows up. And that takes us to, let's see, what are we about? Verse 38 Jesus is deeply moved again and he comes to the tomb. It's a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? And then he says this in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And I'm going to tell them, if you, man, if you saw that, if you saw that, and that guy comes up and he's wrapped up, and they say, you know, sometimes there was 40, 50, 60, 80 pounds of cloth and spices all over him, and the dude comes out of that, when Jesus cried out, God was glorified right here, right? And how did it happen? What did Jesus do to make a dead man alive? Could Lazarus have just come out on his own? Because our spiritual death is oh so similar to Lazarus' physical death. Dead people can't move. We've all been to funerals. Maybe with your kids, you've had a pet that has died, and your kids are wailing, and you know as a dad or a mom or a grandpa, there's nothing you can do, and they're wailing. And that that dog or, or... is not coming back alive. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing I can do. There is nothing a dead person can do. But when Jesus spoke and he said, come alive, Lazarus came alive and he came out and they saw. And that's how spiritually dead people are as well. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians talks about, right? Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5 We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We have no interest in God when we're dead in our sins. We have no ability to come alive. But what does it say? God makes alive. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Only Jesus call. John chapter 3. We're there in John, so let's jump over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Nicodemus is a a leader, a, a teacher in Israel. He uh, comes to Jesus in the night, and he basically says, what's the deal? You know, are, are you the one? What, 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 is, what is going on here? And uh, Jesus answers him. Um, you know, Nicodemus says, are you from God? Uh, no one can do these things that you do. And Jesus answered and says this in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... And actually, that born again really means is, is born from above, is a, is a pretty accurate translation. Unless one is born from above... He can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, "Well, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do you not marvel that I said to you you must be born again, or born from above, because the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So what it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, earlier it's talking about, about new life. It's talking about salvation in that section right there, water and the Spirit are new birth. Kind of that water and the wind are both pictures of how the Holy Spirit works. And as humans, we kind of like things that we can control. And um, I, I know I, I've, I've shared the story before, but... You know, a, a kid that was being adopted out of Russia, and he'd never been outside before, and he walked out, when his parents, newly adopted, took him outside, um, he started to cry, and they were like, why is he crying? Well, because the sun's on him. He'd never had the sun on him, and he was scared of the wind. They well, why, go, why would you be scared of the wind? If you have never felt a breeze, and all of a sudden there's a 15-mile-an-hour wind, or much less if, you're in, if you've ever visited Wyoming or parts of Colorado or whatever, when there's 90 mile an hour winds. Well, When wind is hitting you, you think, where is this coming from? I don't see where it's coming from. I see the results. I see these trees waving around. I might see trees uprooted. I might see trash blowing in front of me. But how, how does that work? And really in John chapter 3, he's saying, this is how the spirit works. You don't understand how he works, but he works. And it really is a picture from Ezekiel. Let me read to you from Ezekiel. You can listen or you can turn over to Ezekiel 36. This is really uh, where, where Jesus is, is getting this is from Ezekiel 36, um, starting with verse 22. And so this is Ezekiel's written about seven hundred years before the time of Christ, and this is what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. And, and things are bad in Ezekiel's time. Let's be very clear about this. He says, "Hey a time is coming, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Which is an important thing for us to think about. Because in a man-centered theology, we think this, I'm the most important thing that's happening here, and God needs to recognize how much he needs to hook me up and make my life nice. And and there's a lot of quote-unquote Christian teaching, books, self-help, whatever, that places man there. Hey, you're at the center of the universe, and God just wants to hook you up and make everything's happy for you. But look what he says here. Hey, Israel, you're in a terrible place. Everyone's trying to kill you. You're this little bitty nation. You can't fight on your own and, and win on your own. You're this small, and you're fighting these ginormous nations. You have no chance. And don't think that I'm doing this because you're a rock star, because you're not. I'm doing this because I am God and I am the creator God, and I am the sustainer God, and I have decided to set my love on you and watch me work. And think about salvation in the same way. This is not so I can say, wow, I must have had really something really going on and God really needed me for the kingdom. No, we're to look and say, I am humbled that a sinner such as I, who brings nothing to the table, almighty God set his love upon me, and the spirit who moves how how the Father guides Worked in this broken, sinful heart. That's how we should look at salvation. So, O Israel, I'm going to act, and it's for the sake of my holy name, which you in your sin have profaned among the nations to which you came. Verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And so he's setting up, right? You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Oh, no, no, really you're a sinner, but I'm going to act anyway. I will take you, in verse 24, from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you to your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God Ezekiel tying right in to John chapter 3 so does God act God acts and as Isaiah 59 reminds us his arm is not shortened and his ear is not dull, he hears and he acts, he works. His arm is not shortened, he, ha- he works and he is the God we serve. So God is big, God acts. And the third question, is God's gospel call legitimate? Because would, some would say it's not a legitimate call if God is working in our salvation, if God is putting effort into it, it's, it's not a legitimate call. I need to make this decision 100% myself, or it's not a legitimate call. Other people would say, if God enables new life, it's not a legitimate call. Other people, as we look in this section, there's this little phrase, for the life of the world. And people would say, oh, so this must, must teach universalism. He's, he's doing this that all, all are going to be good to go, all are going to be set. Is that what is going on? in this text. Let's jump in again in John 6 and um, in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. But this, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread That came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, is this a legitimate call? Is this idea of this for the life of the world or or believe, believe, believe? Does this mean that everyone's atoned for? Well, I would encourage you, we we probably have it recorded and you could look it up again, but I encourage you to listen again to uh, Keith Withrow's sermon last week on particular redemption or atonement, um, I think he really clearly laid out in several different ways why it was specific to God's children. But a few basic ones, if we could just, as a reminder, look through this. Um, Does the atonement happen at the cross, or does the atonement happen when you believe? So, either it happens at the cross or if it happens when you believe, because people kind of believe those two different things. But if it happens at the cross, do all eventually believe, or does anyone ever go to hell? And if you would agree that even one person would go to hell, then either the atonement was just for some and not for all, or you have an inconsistent problem on your hands. Second question would be, by definition, if you're atoned for, Your sins are paid for and you have eternal life. So if he atoned at the cross for all mankind, kind of a universalism, it means no one can ever go to hell because their sins are atoned for. And if anyone goes to hell, then Jesus did not atone for all. We would agree that biblically the Bible teaches that God reached down and atoned for his children. And then there's two kinds of a call. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24 says this. Um, but we preach Christ. Paul's talking here. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so I'm not just grabbing out of one group. This is, this is people representing the entire world. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there's really two different calls just in, in those two verses. He's saying, we preach to everyone. We don't, we don't know who's going to come to Christ. God doesn't say, hey, uh, hey Pastor Mark, Um, This person over here is going to come to Christ, and this person over here is not. So just go witness to that one. That is not the way the Bible works at all. It says, we preach Christ crucified to all, but to those who are called, they're going to respond. That's the right thinking. A general call to all in preaching or sharing, and a salvific call to the elect. And then it has these terms in there in the section we're looking at that says, you know, believe and eat. And it talks about the manna's from heaven, but it doesn't save. Now, that manna saved in kind of a, a little way, didn't it? So when I go buy a loaf of Wonder Bread, we actually don't eat Wonder Bread. If Natalie makes a hearty loaf of whole wheat bread, or if we buy not Wonder Bread probably, uh, it's from the store, right? You get it from Aldi, you get it from Meijer, Walmart, wherever, and you eat it, right? Manna came down from heaven, so that's a... a and we're joking a little bit here, but that's definitely a step up, right? I mean, what an incredible thing that God Almighty reached down and said, you Israelites wandering in the desert, and you're dying and dying and dying and wandering and wandering. I'm going to care for you in this way. I'm going to send you bread from heaven. And you're supposed to respond in this way, and you can't, you're can't. you supposed to gather it in this way, and this is how much you're supposed to do, and this is from me. Man is a big deal. And so his audience, Jesus' audience here in John 6, would be saying, Hey, manna's a big deal, and, and, and it is. But he's saying, you would eat manna, your forebears would eat manna, and they died. It came from heaven. It was a gift of God, but they died. I mean, read Psalm 90. I mean, Psalm 90 is this s- sad psalm where the psalmist is saying, Lord, give value to my days. This is Moses writing Psalm 90, he says, Lord, please, give value to my day. Because I'm walking in the, west, in the desert, and all I'm seeing is death and death and death. And I'm seeing funeral and funeral and funeral. And Lord, teach me to value my days. Teach me to see value in my days, because all I'm seeing is death here. That's Psalm 90, and that's what they saw eating manna in the wilderness. But he says, I'm the living bread. I'm the bread from heaven. If you consume me, you will live forever forever. So here's, here's something I want us to think about in connection to salvation and belief. Um, oftentimes in Scripture, there might be a, a theological treatise that's, that's this big. But in any given verse, it might just give a little part of that or a little part of that. And then sometimes what people end up doing is they kind of just grab a little bit here or maybe grab a little bit there and say, hey, this is, this is theology. Or, nope, this is, this is what God believes when they're missing all, the, all of it together. And so um, at, a little, at a really small way, think of it this way. You look at uh, Mark chapter one and Jesus is, is going through the countryside and he's saying what? He's saying, repent and believe the good news. And he's traveling along and he's not saying, I'm just gonna say this to a few people. He's traveling along and he's saying, repent and believe the good news. And we can say, hey, that's, that's biblical salvation. But some places in scripture, it'll just have repent. They'll say, just repent and it won't say believe. And so we can skew things and we say, well, I guess it's just repentance. We don't need to believe. No. Repent and believe. There's a lot of other places that will just say, hey, believe. And then we can skew that and say, hey, repentance, eh, you know, do that later. Maybe there's a later time in your life and you need to repent. But right now, just believe. Just simple belief. But what it is, is there's just not every theological thing is given at one time in Scripture. Right? So um, here's what's going on in, in your salvation. If you look at the, you know, we get big words, you know, the the order of salvation, ordo salutis, we would say, you know, what's going on with that? Well, we have have predestination and election. We have the call. Uh, We have actual conversion, which is repentance and belief. We have justification. We then have adoption. We have God's sustaining of us. And then we have God's bringing us to himself. Do you know that's all going on in salvation? And a lot of it is just almost stacked right on top of each other. It's all going on. And so we could study that theological system we have in the drilling down class. I've been looking at that in some weeks back. But I promise you this, believers that are here. When you came to Christ, were you like, weird. Right now I'm being adopted. And you know what? I think like a second ago, I was being justified. Or, you know, we... We don't know that that is occurring with us, right? So in salvation, so, so, so think of it this way. So we have a, a church service here today, and we have an hour and a half, and we have, we have music, it's all worship, we have music, and we, we worship in giving, and we worship in singing, and we worship in the word, and prayer, and sometimes we have the Lord's table, and sometimes we have baptism, and it's an hour and a half, and say, oh, that was great. What was going on connected to that? Well, a whole bunch more. And we have emails going on the week where people are communicating who's covering what. We have sermons being studied for. We have hours of work on music. We have who's going to be security? Who's going to be collecting money? Who's teaching Sunday school classes? Sunday school teachers are preparing. Buildings are being cleaned. Nursery is being taken care of. There's the AV room. There's the sound there's all this stuff going on. I'm sure I'm missing things. I know there's a lot more. But there's all this is going on. But if the first time I walked into church here and I sat in the back, the very first time, I didn't think of that. I didn't know who cleaned. It was clean, but I didn't even think, somebody's been cleaning this place. And that's often how it is. That's how it is in salvation. None of us comes to Christ and says, wow, look it, he was drawing me. He was drawing me. He was, whoa, he's drawing I didn't feel that. Now, I have talked with people who have said, yes, I did feel the drawing pull of, of Christ. Tremendous. But for most people that I talk to, certainly for myself, I didn't feel that. I felt like I was coming to a recognition of my own sin. I felt like mm, I was in a church. We were, we were going to a new church where I was hearing the good news. I was talking to my parents and they were sharing Christ with me. And oftentimes, God uses means of recognizing sin in our life and god is using those means might use the means of someone that you love dying might use the means all kinds of different means that he uses that we don't we are not aware of at the time but as we study the word we say glory be to god look at what he was doing look at what he is doing what a mighty god we serve he's not some small god he is actively working he is actively offering Salvation. What's going on in irresistible grace? It tells us that we're such hopeless sinners that we would never choose Christ apart from his loving drawing. And he might use a variety of means, and he does to do so. And whether we're aware of it or not, we can look into the word and say, Look how my mighty God acts. And really, if you're there in John 6, we should really read this little section before. Uh, verse 41. So read in 35. Start with me in John chapter 6. Jesus had been saying to them, I'm the bread of life. He said that over and over and over. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that have seen me and yet do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me Is his call legitimate? And we say, God is big, he does work, and his call is legitimate. Just quickly, in conclusion, three things we must never connect with the doctrines of grace. I want you to hear this, I want you to think about this. And I would encourage you, go home and study through some of these passages again. Be super helpful. Talk with any of the other pastors. Say, hey, tell me some of those passages that you used again. I want to think through this. But three things... We must never connect with the doctrines of grace. The first one is sad fatalism. It's never spoken of that way in Scripture. It's always given as an encouragement. Read Romans chapter 8. I mean, it talks about predestination and God working and God doing this and God doing this, and it's for our comfort. No sad fatalism. Two, no person, another one we should never do, no person ever tractor-beamed into Christianity, kicking and screaming. That's not the point of Scripture. Three, no person desiring, and this is a big one, no person desiring forgiveness in Christ is ever told, sorry, you're not elect. I've talked with some people even within the walls of this church. I've talked with people in the community. And I've, I've talked with people outside of this community. And I've had people tell me over the last 15 years of being a pastor, I, I don't know if I'm the elect or not, so I'm not really going to worry about it. That is not the point of Scripture at all. You don't get any of that ever from Scripture, ever. Ever. And you shouldn't think that, and you should never communicate that to anyone. That is not what our holy God gives. How should I respond? First of all, we should respond in belief and worship. We say, God, you are God, and I believe and trust in you. And if you are that, from that list I mentioned earlier, if you're single or married, mom or dad, retired, middle schooler, do you believe? Do you follow? Do you trust? This holy and good God who works behind the scenes. Two, share Christ. Um, the accusation against those that uh, believe the doctrines of grace, they don't share Christ. And I think, and, and others have done well in explaining this as well, we could look historically at missionary after missionary after missionary after missionary. You know, uh, Pastor Mark shared a lot of those. Pastor Keith shared a lot of those. Hey, here's this famous missionary. I remember him, William Carey. Doctrines of grace. Hey, I remember this famous missionary. Doctrines of grace. Over and over and over. And then, even for us, we share Christ crucified. We share it with our coworkers. We share it with friends and family and neighbors. We we share Christ. That is the gift God has given us. And that is what Jesus went around. You know, I'd reference Mark chapter 1. He went around the country side saying, Repent and believe the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we do as well. That's what the Apostle Paul did. Paul taught the doctrines of grace. Read Romans. I mean, read Ephesians. Paul, The Apostle Paul fully believed the doctrines of grace. And what did he spend his life doing? Sharing Christ. Missionary journey after missionary journey after missionary journey that were hard. And beatings and imprisonment and people running him off oftentimes. And he keeps saying, My eye is on the prize, I'm sharing Christ. My eye is on the prize, I'm sharing Christ. Third thing, we need to pray. So we need to believe in worship, we need to share Christ, we need to pray. We need to pray things like, Lord, I beg you, save whomever. You think of who you are praying for now. Pray for them more. Beseech the throne of heaven. And when we're praying, we're saying this, God, you are big and powerful and work and have a gospel call Please open her eyes. Please open his eyes. And when we are praying that, we are praying irresistible grace. Use your effectual grace. Draw them to yourself, Heavenly Father. Give them new life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, at times we can sinfully think, I've got to save so-and-so. I've got to convince so-and-so. At times, Lord, some of us have even said, uh, we'll do some manipulation to try to convince a person. And Lord, Lord, while your word encourages us and pushes us to know you and to have answers and reasons for the hope that lies within us, Lord, we are to preach Christ. We are to say, hey, look to Jesus. Hey, and winsomely And kindly and lovingly point people to Jesus. Knowing that your effectual grace draws and works and accomplishes what it will. It's not my job to save someone, you work. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to fully rely on you. Work in the hearts of those here that are not believers to trust in you as Savior. And Lord, help us to see your bigness and your action and your call and your effectual grace. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.